Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. Michael DeJoseph, welcome to Success at Last. We're excited to have you today. Thanks for having me, Jared. Super excited to chat today. Let's just jump into it. I'm sure we'll cover a little bit of your background and career, but I wanted to talk to you today about a seminal study that Vanguard produced many years ago that you've been a part of that team in refreshing and updating this study time and time again. Organizationally, we'll often refer to ourselves as an evidence-based advisor. And anytime we can get our hands on empirical evidence versus just personal anecdotes or guesses, we always are biased towards the evidence. And so I've turned to this study as a way to quantify the opportunity that an advisor does have to deliver value to a client. Let's spend a few minutes talking about this seminal study that Vanguard produced in the most recent iterations of it. Yeah, it sounds like a great place to start. Like you said, something I've spent probably a good bulk of my professional career now working on, kind of lucked into it a little bit relatively early on, but you're referring to Advisors Alpha. Let's jump into it. Kind of what was the original idea around Advisors Alpha? And then I guess, why has Vanguard continued to support refresh after refresh? So the original idea coming up on about 20 years ago now, the, the term was coined internally and it was just simply... You know, you think of alpha in terms of investment funds and outperforming the market and, you know, just a huge demand shift towards consumers seeking financial advice, just meaning and retail investors over the last two decades. And so Vanguard created this concept of, you know, the advisor themselves can produce alpha in terms of helping those clients meet their goals. And so if you think about it in that framework of outperformance, So when we talk about Advisors Alpha, we think of, well, what's the average experience out there? What's the average client getting? What's the average advisor doing even? And then we say, well, what if they were doing something a little different, right? Or what if the average client, average investor didn't have an advisor? What if they did? And they had an advisor who was doing, you know, kind of what you do, right? The goals-based, as you said, empirical, evidence-based advice. And what is the value in that? And try to equate it to what would be the value of outperforming a benchmark, say the S&P 500 in an active fund? It's the same thing. So if you come and hire an advisor, you know what's the value that you're going to get over and above that fee that you might pay? Fascinating. So to keep our listeners no longer in suspense, we'll dissect the study, but what was the conclusion? What was the ultimate findings of the study, the potential economic value of, of Advisor Alpha? So the headline result was that we believe that advisors adhering to a holistic wealth management framework could add what we call about 3% per year in annualized returns relative to the average experience. 
obviously there's a number of caveats there. And, you know, the biggest one is that this is much more of an art than a science. We think there's some rigor behind that, but it's certainly not every single client every single year. Absolutely. Well, clients of the firm and friends of the firm will, will have heard us say that we can add more value through planning than we can through predictions. You know, we've referenced the economic forecasts of Wall Street and how wrong they are many times. The super study that Phil Tetlock did in his book, Super Forecast, and how poorly forecasters do. And so we, we've talked about that a bit. We've emphasized the importance of planning. More recently, we had a study that we talked about individuals that integrated their income tax planning and estate tax planning ended up with three times more wealth than the families that didn't. That was from a Journal of Wealth Management summer of 2021 study that we spent some time reviewing with, with the author. But let's dissect this advisor alpha study and kind of the various components and or levers that are available to an advisor to deliver tangible value to clients. Sure. And a huge fan of the super forecasting work as well. You know, to put it really simply, just try to understand what's actually in your control. You know, we're bad at forecasting the future because the future is not forecastable, really simply put. Yeah, it's fascinating. You just go back into what were some of the forecasts at the end of 2019? Well, nobody was forecasting a global pandemic. And then actually, even just right now, if you go back, and I like to keep track of the forecasts going into the next year, I've read, you know, here are the 15 largest banks on Wall Street and what their economic forecasts were for 2022. Nobody's within the stratosphere of where we are today. Nobody anticipated interest rates and inflation and the bear market that we're in right now. So again, strong believers in a lot more value through building robust portfolios that will be resilient across a variety of different macro scenarios than trying to build a payday portfolio that pays off when our guest turns out to be right. Totally agree. And so the advisor's alpha framework itself. So the good news is that about 3%, that doesn't even cover that traditional definition of investment alpha. And that's because the way we talk about this framework is that it's maximizing net returns relative to gross, right? So after tax returns, and I know one of your recent guests, you had a very in-depth conversation around after tax returns and tax efficiency, someone much smarter on the topic than myself. But we effectively look at it. It's like, like you said, first of all, investing is really hard, generally speaking, especially when you're doing anything that involves active management or forecasting. And so this is not a judgment on that. It's just simply an acknowledgement that advisors can help clients keep more of what they work so hard to earn. To approach that, we look at it in three key areas in which the gross returns deviate from the net returns. And so it's portfolio leakage say one is costs. So people who are paying too much for investments, and that's especially true for, I would say, probably passive investors, right? If you're, if you're just getting a market exposure, you probably shouldn't be paying a ton for it. So costs, second one, the big one, taxes. So that's tax efficiency in terms of the investment portfolio. That's tax efficiency in terms of what we call asset location. Really simply put, where do you put the assets? Most investors are going to have you know, an IRA, a Roth, maybe a 401k, as well as the traditional taxable accounts. Then you're making decisions about, well, if I have some combination of stocks and bonds, maybe even private investments, alternatives, whatever it may be, where in the world do I put them to take advantage of some of the tax advantage nature of some of those accounts? We got costs, we have taxes, and I should say the tax part applies in decumulation as well. And so that's what we'd call withdrawal order. Just like where do you put the assets? 
when it comes time to actually start spending them down, or if it comes time to, you know, start the estate planning process, where do you pull the money from? What types of accounts do you leave? You know, all the different work that you and your firm do that goes into that. And then the third one, and this is the area where I probably spend most of my time talking with advisors and producing research on is behavior. And that's the biggie. In our study, when we put a number on behavioral coaching, as we call it, which is basically, you know, what's the average person doing versus what could they be doing if they were maybe a little better at sticking to the plan? The number comes out to roughly 150 basis points. And like I said, that's, that's an art, not a science. In layperson speak, that's probably one and a half percent, correct? About Those one that and don't half speak percent. in basis points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's a good point too, because a lot of this work that we do, or at least historically have done, you asked earlier on, you know, why have we kept on doing this? Well, well, for starters, it was, you know, to help advisors, help consumers understand what the value is. But we also want to start talking to people in their language, right? So 150 basis points, one and a half percent, when we're talking about human behavior. I think the metric maybe doesn't line up quite perfectly. And so that 150 basis points to me has always been the one that's not like the others. We used to have this joke internally uh, amongst our research team that it's like the old MasterCard commercials. Do you remember where it's like uh, costs 30 basis points, asset location, 70 basis points, investor behavior priceless. Yeah, that's fascinating. I have a tremendous passion for the psychology of investing in our kind of predictably irrational behavior. And so kind of behavioral finance is a huge passion project for me. But let's spend a few minutes talking about what that actually means and how elusive it is. So I would cite that Daniel Kahneman would be one of the architects and kind of godfathers of behavioral finance. And even he, the author of this academic study, ultimately was awarded a Nobel Prize for his research indicated that he is still every bit as susceptible to some of these cognitive biases that we have that would lead to us concluding inaccurately what the right financial move would be. And I believe it. at times he said, as he studied these more, his decision-making is actually decreased in terms of optimization. That's absolutely incredible. I tell that story all the time when I'm talking to people because, again, it's hard. And I think sometimes... In our industry, we can lack empathy. And one of my personal pet peeves is some of the language around, you know, investors shooting themselves in the foot and blowing themselves up and becoming their own worst enemies. And it's like, it's not for lack of work. It's not for lack of intentions that people aren't always making the best investment decisions. That said, this goes right to the point that you just said. So Daniel Kahneman invented the field effectively and knows more about it than anyone else on the planet really never actually made him any better at decision-making. And so we have this concept that we've written about and we've talked about for a number of years uh, amongst my team, and we call it right mindset, wrong market. And so if we break that down, I think it's a little bit of a unique spin on this whole behavioral finance field of study. And we approach it from more of an empathetic decision-making lens. And so what we say is that in most areas of life, you're talking inconsequential decisions like picking a restaurant, We've examined college rankings, so using the the ranking systems to pick university for yourself or for your children. Even in the medical field, there's a large body of study around surgical skill relative to outcomes. And so what you see is that using past performance, using relative rankings, using ratings works really well. 
So like I said, restaurant, you're going to go on Yelp, you're going to look at Michelin stars, and those are going to lead to good outcomes. Those rankings aren't going to change very often. Same with colleges, right? It's like the same top 10 is generally going to be in the top 10, probably one, two, three generations later. Surgeons, you, you pick the best surgeon. If you can get into them, you're probably going to have the best outcomes. And so I think we turn it on our head, on its head a little bit. And most people say, again, investors are irrational and they're making bad decisions. And I would say it would be crazy that the system that works so well in every other realm of decision-making that suddenly you're just going to not apply it to something as important as investing. So that's why we say it's the right mindset, but it's the wrong market. And I think the problem is not the people, the problem is the markets themselves and just how irrational and unpredictable and counterintuitive investing is as a decision-making realm. A book actually that you turned me on to, The Success Equation, I thought introduced a lot of really fascinating concepts. You know, this idea that there's a continuum of pure luck based activities and then pure skill-based activities. So to kind of set the landscape, then roulette would be luck. The slot machine would be luck. Calling a coin toss would be pure luck. And at the opposite end of the equation, you might have playing chess. You know, a world-class chess champion is going to beat me every time. Swimming. I'm not going to get lucky and beat Michael Phelps one day or sprinting. So accidentally beat Hussein Bolt one day. You know, there's certain skills that are relatively predictable. What's interesting, though, is the, the paradox of skill as the competitive landscape elevates and everyone becomes more skilled. The difference between the 100-meter champ and the second-place guy is, is fractional seconds. Luck does play a little bit more of a, an impact on that end of the equation. But the majority of life resides somewhere in between pure luck and pure skill. And investment outcomes over a short duration of time introduces some luck, good or bad. I think that's a fascinating insight. Even Nassim Taleb uh, or Taleb, I, he talks about the post hoc fallacy, you know, and it's this idea that after this, therefore, because of this, and it's our desire to connect the dots to have a causal relationship with all things that we create stories around events that may or may not actually be true. And it requires a level of empirical rigor to actually extract causal relationships and when there's thousands of inputs that move markets, it's very difficult to do that consistently. That's really well put. And that really gets to the heart of the whole wrong market part. And I would say it's actually billions of inputs. It's the, you know, the capital markets are really the, the whims, the objectives, the decisions of billions of people. And you know, I think our, our libraries probably look very similar. You kind of alluded to Dan Ariely. I think we'd all yeah, agree that yeah. people aren't out here making the textbook rational decision. I think we all agree on that. But to go back to uh, the success equation, and I believe it's Michael Mobison, it's interesting because not only are we connecting the dots and telling the stories about the past and trying to explain why things happened, and we then extrapolate that to the future. And we don't really account for that the future is always different. And so the reason I'm tying those two things together, if we think about that success equation with the luck versus skill, the paradox that you referred to is that as the absolute level of skill increases in any field, luck begins to dominate the outcomes. And yeah. so why is that important? I would argue that investing has actually gotten significantly harder over time. You're talking 30 years ago, before the internet, before online brokers, before the average investor had access to pretty much all the world's information in their pocket at any time. 
today's iPhone is a supercomputer of barely a decade ago. Today, everyone has that information though. People are moving their offices to get closer to the exchanges so that they have, I don't even know how many zeros are on it, a millionth or a billionth of a second faster information. And we're expecting the average person that probably has another job to be able to, if I just put in enough work and enough research, you know, I'll beat the market. And it just, I think it's unreasonable at this point, just given how difficult that's become. We certainly believe in, in investment skill. And I would say even Vanguard as a firm, I mean, we're one of the biggest active managers in the world. So this is by no means to denigrate the skill of active managers, uh, you know, as a whole. We actually think it's the opposite. We think there's so many really talented, really skillful managers and investors out there. There's so much money chasing so little return that it's actually harder to produce good outcomes. And so again, that goes back to the advisor's outputs. You know, the investment part is important, but at the end of the day, there are things that you can do, minimizing your costs, minimizing your taxes to the extent possible, and really trying to get a handle on that behavior that are going to have a much bigger impact than probably any marginal minute, hour, or day that you're going to spend on investment research. Absolutely. Well, you, you brought up a concept there that I want to unpack a little bit. Chris Tidmore, he was one of the authors on a paper that hit on a concept that we brought up before, but helped unpack. I believe, if I can remember correctly, it was a data set from 87 through 2017. So pretty significant data set for the Russell 3000. So basically the US publicly traded stock market, and it plotted the individual contribution of the index's return during that time frame, and roughly, give or take, about 7% of the individual companies disproportionately delivered the return. Those were companies that had in excess of a 1,000% return. And it introduced an interesting concept, that right tail, that extra performance of so many standard deviations away from the arithmetic mean, distorted kind of way people think of averages because the arithmetic average was so much higher than the median, which would be the middle of that data set. And so it really emphasized how unbelievably difficult it is to identify individual companies that are going to outperform. And I think it was actually your founder, Jack Bogle, that had a quote, something along the lines of, why buy the needle when you can just buy the haystack? Why look for the needle when you can just own the haystack? You know, I thought that that was a a phenomenal place to start the conversation and obviously has been a significant source of Vanguard's growth over the years. That's right, Jared. And I would say it's been a significant contributor to the ability of millions, if not billions of individuals around the globe to have a better life and to meet their goals. Are you familiar with the Warren Buffett hedge fund bet? And I think it was the Vanguard S&P outperformed a fund of funds, so 100 hedge funds was absolutely clobbered by Vanguard's S&P 500 fund. Is that correct? That's right. I believe it was so far ahead. I think the people who made the bet paid out early. They didn't even bother (laughs) to continue. I think that was interesting. And and it was an interesting who originated that bet. I mean, most people think of Warren Buffett as a stock picker and this active manager. And at the end of the day, he looked at the numbers. His conclusion was that most managers don't earn their fee and much significant wealth is dissipated as a result of chasing a predictions-based approach to performance. So I think they conceded the bet a couple of years early. Pretty fun story. Pretty impactful stuff. And, I, and every time I look at that research, and you know, I know others have done similar research, the numbers are staggering to me. It gets back to that zero-sum game. The average stock, is, at least historically, has underperformed. 
So you have, like you said, less than 10% of the names and these are, you know, the big names, you know, we could sit here and rattle off in any given time period or any given generation, this seems to hold. And the thing that I take from it, it wasn't in the research, but, you know, it always kind of sticks with me. It's, you know, these companies get really big and you think to yourself, well, there's no way that company can keep getting bigger, right? Or these stocks go up and Tesla is kind of the current generation example of this. It's like, it's gone up so much. How much higher could it possibly go? And people were saying that five years ago. And it's names like that that are just driving the returns of the market. And it's been especially true over recent periods of time as well. And so, like you said, it just points to the importance of diversification. And it's certainly a check in the column for indexing and kind of broad-based investing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going through client meetings right now. And so I kind of pulled some anecdotes just because as a species, we sure love stories better than Excel spreadsheets. But my intuition would have told me that if I could go back to 2020 in January before the pandemic really set in, that Zoom would have been a great company to own. We're recording today over Zoom, right? So much of business is conducted over Zoom. School is conducted over Zoom. And as I look at the S&P versus Zoom from January of 2020 through today, the 12th when we're recording this of September, the S&P is up 43% and Zoom is down 21%. There's a difference between a great company and a great investment. You know, A great investment at the end of the day has to incorporate price into the consideration. And so I think sometimes we can conflate what is a great company or great product with a great investment, and that's not always the case. Let's spend a little bit of time talking a little bit more about Advisor Alpha and some of the frameworks that you think you've been able to observe that are repeatable and scalable to capture value and provide value to clients. So there's a reactive model and then there's a proactive model. So let's spend a minute talking about both of those. So obviously, I would be an advocate to be proactive as much as possible, but that's not always the case. There's a time and a place to respond to unanticipated things. So let's start there. What's the reactive model within kind of the greater advisor alpha framework? Yeah. So when we talk about reactive, I should say they're hard to separate out because a lot of the stuff that goes in proactively, particularly building the relationship, building trust, preparing, planning, et cetera, is kind of a critical lever to have when you actually get into the moment. If you've never prepared for, say, a market downturn, if you've never planned for that, if you've never had the conversation, if you don't have an advisor who you trust or you know, a second set of eyes or ears, it's probably not going to work quite as well. But effectively, it's really simple, but I think it's kind of uh, elegant in the simplicity. We call it the 3A framework, and it's assess, address, and audit. And so the assess is really just, it's kind of like stop, drop, and roll, right? Stop, take a deep breath. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's see if we can find some historical parallels. And again, not saying that history is going to repeat, but you know, the saying history rhymes. So we'll use 2020 as an example. Early on in 2020, we were looking and, and we actually put out a piece on our website or probably in February of 2020 or so, where we said, hey, what happened to the markets when you know, the original SARS outbreak happened? What happened in the markets when H1N1 happened or Zika or, or Ebola or all these other different kind of global health crises? Obviously, we had no idea the tragedy that was about to unfold, but let's look at how markets react to this. And it was kind of surprising see, they tended to be temporary downturns. And so we say assess the situation and then assess what it means for you. So if you're an advisor, it's 
hey, going through your book of business, going through your clients' plans and saying, which one of my clients might be more affected by this, whether it's on the emotional side, right? Maybe you have investors who are more conservatively oriented, who can't handle the market volatility, or maybe it's you have someone who's looking to retire in one or two years. And I've had people like that in my own family that early 2020, they're saying, you know, hey, I'm a teacher, for example, and I'm looking to retire at the end of the school year. You know, the market's down 30% three years before the end of the school year. It's like, am I going to be okay? And so that's part of just assessing the situation. It's just taking stock, what it means for you, what it means for your clients, and what you think might happen next. The address, that's kind of like the first step of taking action. And there's a couple of ways to look at that. One, particularly for advisors, something that we talk about is what I call the EQ plus IQ approach. That's meeting the emotion with the emotion. Market downturns are extremely stressful. We believe that risk tolerance is not stationary, meaning that if you ask someone in 2019 of December, and the market seems like it had been going up forever, if you ask someone in December 2019 what their risk tolerance is and whether they can handle a 20, 30, 40% loss, the answer is going to be very different than what's your risk tolerance in April of 2020. Yeah, that's true. Part of that, mentioning that, that kind of gets back to that proactive part, right? Of planning ahead and just thinking about what that means. But I do think it's important to empathize with that, to meet the emotion with the emotion, and then you kind of back it up with that IQ approach. It's like, hey, we get it. This is really difficult. But luckily, and hopefully, we put in some work up front. We're prepared for it for the best, to the best extent that we could be without knowing what's going to happen, right? It's easy for Jared, you and I to sit back here and say, oh, April 2020, it was obvious the Fed was going to print money and we we're going to pass stimulus packages and the market was going to bounce back. We didn't know that. I mean, if we're being no. honest, it's nope. every time's different and every time feels awful. I remember you know, early on in my career, these numbers might sound quaint now. I remember being on a trading floor and Dow's probably at like seven or 8,000 and Congress votes down TARP, which was the troubled asset relief program it was effectively the bank bailout bill. And the market yeah. went down a thousand points. And it's like, in 2020, the market was going down a thousand points, but it started at 30. Like I remember seeing it go down a thousand when it started at eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big difference. So on the address, then I think the second part here, and I think this is really important. And I think this is really difficult for the individual investor to have a handle on and to understand what these tools are. And this kind of gets to the heart of the advisor's alpha. That's this concept we talk about that staying the course doesn't mean standing still. And so you hear stay the course all the time, right? It's don't bail out of the market. Don't make that really emotional decision at the bottom that's really going to you know, impair your ability to meet your goals long-term. But that's not it. That's not what staying the course means. Staying the course, it's the analogy. Vanguard's notorious or, or famous for our, our analogies to ships. It's like you know, staying on course in a ship requires an enormous amount of minor course corrections along the time, right? You don't just get on the boat and you're at your destination if you don't do anything. And so during a market downturn, I mean, the obvious one's rebalancing. You know, it's a mechanism that can help you buy low, sell high, keep your risk tolerance. One of the modules we talk about in Advisors Alpha that adds to that headline about 3% number is asset allocation. We don't even put a number on it. We just say it's greater than zero. It's extremely important. But you spend so much time on it, and I know you and your firm spend so much time up front getting that right. You have to stay in the course is actually requiring you to do something to stay to that plan. But then there's other things that I think are underappreciated too. And so we talk about tax loss harvesting quite a bit. You know, it's something that 
probably want to make sure is actually appropriate for you to, you don't want to just be harvesting losses just, you know, for the sake of harvesting losses. I think there's probably a little more nuance in that topic in particular than might commonly be considered something like a Roth conversion, even right. I mentioned pre-retirees, maybe someone early on in retirement. And so Roth conversion, you know, effectively means you can accelerate the taxes on your tax deferred money and convert it into tax-free money so that you won't have to pay it later. In this scenario of a downturn, the account value might be down a little bit. The individual's income might be down a little bit. Maybe they got laid off. Maybe a business owner, their business's revenue or profits are down a little bit. And so taking advantage of that and maybe accelerating taxes when the rate is lower, and you know it might be higher in the future. Maybe using those losses to get a little creative. I know prior guests, you've talked about concentrated portfolios and you know how a lot of wealth, particularly in the United States, particularly in the ultra high net worth space tends to be concentrated in, you know, maybe one company, for example, that a family might've started and passed on. You know, you want to diversify, but there's also enormous knowable and controllable consequences in the form of taxes from doing that. And so maybe you're harvesting losses to offset a concentrated position. Or maybe you're doing it to offset a high cost position that maybe you would have liked to get out of, but didn't want to realize the losses on. Things like that. We talk about dynamic distributions in retirement, which is kind of adjusting your spending. Back to that concept of things that are in your control. You know, you can control your spending uh, a little easier than you can control the returns of the market. Yeah, no, I think over the last stretch of time, the market's been pretty exceptional, right? Over the last 10 years or so, returns have been above average and volatility has been below average. And if I guess if we get back to the sailing metaphors or the shipping metaphors that we were talking about earlier, calm waters don't necessarily mean skilled sailors. And so I think a lot of people misjudged how easy it can be at times. And Warren Buffett talks about investing is simple, not easy. And I think it's often that, that emotional distress that you feel and the anxiety that you feel when volatility is high and asset prices are low and the future only promises you uncertainty. Jared, we had talked, I recommended you Howard Marks too, the most important thing. And the concept that he talks about frequently is kind of a turning on its head of conventional wisdom around risk. I think a lot of people measure risk by volatility. And so when you say, you know, the market's been relatively calm, notwithstanding kind of our current situation in 2020. So, you know, maybe not so much anymore, but ironically, that may be when volatility is the lowest. And if you're kind of following that traditional measure of risk equals volatility, you might think your risk is the lowest, but that's also, I would say it's the opposite. I'd say that's when risk is the highest. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, in the, the final couple minutes here that we have together, I wanted to see if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about kind of a, a different version of the advisor alpha, the institutional advisor alpha. And so for, for a lot of our guests listening, they might not know, but like you might have a university endowment would have an investment committee and they might hire somebody with generally an Ivy League credentialing and, and a lot of fancy letters after their name. And their job is to help them come up with an asset allocation strategy, an advisor strategy. You might have different advisors for different asset classes. In the aggregate, the promise, so to speak, is that net of all of these fees and costs that you'll be better off than accepting what you could have otherwise captured from the market. And so if I've kind of set the stage Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but let's spend a couple minutes chatting about that. Yeah. And so similar concept. It's as you mentioned, right? The advisor's alpha concept. 
as a, you know, an end investor, someone like ourselves or our own families working with a financial advisor. Like you said, the institutional advisors alpha is generally an institution working with a consultant, which is effectively the equivalent of an advisor for an end client. Now, there's also an extra layer there that consultant tends to stand in between the end investor. And yeah. so whether you're yep. talking about a 401k committee or you know an endowment or a foundation, it's like the end beneficiary is really not all that involved in the decision-making. And so to put it really simply, we looked at the average experience versus what could be, and we did that same experiment and said, this is what we think the value of a consultant is or could be. I should preface this with a lot of the consultants out there are doing that and are yeah. adding a tremendous amount of value. A lot of them are not. And like you said, some of these are often the smartest. We'll go back to the, the skill versus luck, right? They're some of the most skilled investment professionals in the world, if not in the history of the entire industry. And it just gets at just how hard this is to do. And so when we look at it, we can actually say, let's look at the returns of big endowments, right? The Harvards, the University of Texas, I think I saw is now the largest endowment thanks to some of the energy investments over the past year. Yale is the most famous of them all, yeah. the David Swenson model. And then we can compare, you know, medium size and smaller size, right? So the big ones are the ones that are over a billion dollars. There's not a ton of them. They have access to the best managers in the world, more or less unlimited resources, right? They can have several hundred investment professionals in-house whose job is just to interview and do due diligence on other investment managers. And what you see happen is that other than those very large few, and even most of them too, over most time horizons, do no better than a 60-40 stock bond portfolio of say four to six or eight ETFs that probably cost less than 10 basis points. And so some of these firms have you know, multi-million dollar you know, if not multi-tens of millions of dollars of budgets of investment professionals, and they underperform a 10 basis point ETF portfolio. That's wild. You see it in all, in all areas. There's a tendency to, again, judge past performance and assume or extrapolate or conflate that it'll impact future performance. Again, right mindset, wrong market. And you see people chase, and the institutional advisors are even doing that, right when a specific manager's strategy it might have underperformed for three years. New market environment, all of a sudden it's set to, to outperform. But in that process, that other manager has been fired, put in the prior manager that has experienced a period of success right as they regress back to the mean. In the retail setting, Kathy Wood kind of seemingly came out of nowhere for me in 2020 with her ARK Innovations ETF. And for good reason. In 2020, the year of the COVID, the start of the pandemic, the fund was up 148%. I mean, it was a spectacular return, but very few people knew of ARC Innovations back in January. It was all the public attention that it received as it was earning a triple digit return. So then people allocated resources to that. So if you just say, well, what if you actually owned it from January 1st of 2020 through present day and compared that to Vanguard's S&P strategy, the Vanguard strategy is up 33% and the ARK Innovations is down over 11%. So it's given back all of that additional performance. So it's this idea that you can't chase, right? When investing, there's the continuum of luck and success and you need a larger data set. When luck is a contributing factor, you need a larger data set for skill to begin to trump and mute 
nullify the influence of luck. That's right. The best way I would put that is that avoiding that behavior is probably a more valuable and useful skill than actually picking investments. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, we agree. And Jared, I do just want to put in there on the Institutional Advisors Alpha, I want to make sure that the listeners know that's not an all negative story either, because what we also talk about in there is on the 401k side and you know some of the decisions that have been made around auto enrollment. So when people yeah. go to a job, they're automatically in the 401k unless they jump through some hoops to get out of it. You have to jump through hoops to not increase your savings rate. And they're going to default you into a broadly diversified, maybe like a target date fund type investment where it's going to kind of uh, generally de-risk, become a little more conservative over time. And, and you can't actually trade the components of it. So we're talking about, you know, you just were alluding to the investor behavior gap. If you can't actually trade the different components of your portfolio, you're not going to be chasing performance. And so a lot of that, the plan design features that consultants and other investment professionals have been responsible for, there's a lot of noise out there around millennials and Gen Z, maybe not being as good of investors, right? The meme stocks and crypto and all of these things. I actually think it's the opposite. I think they've had a huge head start. And I think we're going to start seeing the benefits of just better advice all around. And, and so if I may answer the question around, you know, why have we continued to update the advisor's alpha after all these years? It's for that reason. It's that we think the average consumer is getting better advice each and every day because advisors are providing better advice that's more aligned with their clients' interests. And we think the, the rising tide lifts all of the boats and we think it has a real impact on investors and people's ability to meet their goals. Well, Mike, I don't think we can end it on a better spot than that, kind of come full circle. Just want to say on behalf of our audience today, thank you so much for your time, generously sharing your knowledge. Appreciate what Vanguard has done to democratize capital markets for investors, the opportunity to access you know, 10,000 plus stocks in 40 different countries and 30 plus different currencies for a number that's closer to free than anything else is pretty incredible. And obviously, the team of Vanguard and, and Jack Bogle helped kind of pioneer an industry that's continued to expand where now we can capture market returns and change our focus and our emphasis from trying to, to provide capital market returns to providing planning that will actually positively impact client outcomes on an after-tax risk-adjusted basis. Well, again, thank you, Jared. Thanks to all the listeners and uh, appreciate you having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Mike.